Well, thanks to Jenny for leading us in prayer, and thank you to Mike for reading our text for today. Let's, uh, let's dive in. Uh, last Sunday, while many of us were doing exactly what we're doing right now, uh, 29-year-old Jacob Blake was shot in the back seven times by a police officer in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And three of his children witnessed the event from the backseat of his car. And at the point of this recording, his condition is reportedly stable, uh, but he has lost a number of his internal organs and is unlikely to ever walk again. And this is just the latest in what seems like an unending stream of highly publicized police shootings in 2020. And predictably, uh, the unrest surrounding the issues of police brutality and race relations, particularly in America, but also all over the world, um, has become stoked to full flame yet again. Justice is a topic that is at the forefront of everyone's minds this year. Our social media feeds are littered with hashtags and petitions. And in fact, earlier this summer, the change.org petition titled Justice for George Floyd became the most signed petition in the history of the organization. A petition, by the way, that was started by a 15-year-old from Oregon. And so we see that more and more of our culture is waking up to the injustice that is all around us every day. And more and more as this becomes a key topic of public discourse, we are expected to be prepared to comment on these injustices. And as Christians who worship a God whose very character is justice, we need to have thought through these things and to know how to respond. And so, through the lens of our text today, we are going to talk about justice. In our series so far, we've been focusing on the faithfulness of God and how it's made uh, visible in these narratives of Elijah. And today, in the last sermons uh, in this series, we're going to see how God's faithfulness is revealed in providing justice for the oppressed. Now, this is obviously a massive and sensitive topic um, and it, it could be the subject of its own series entirely. But for the purposes of our text uh, today, we're just going to explore two broad categories. They are, uh, first, the cause of injustice, and secondly, the cure for injustice. The cause of injustice and the cure for injustice, all right? And so we're going to start with the first of those. We're going to talk about the cause of injustice. So let's get into our text as the scene opens, we're introduced to Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now remember that uh, even though the capital of Israel is in Samaria, Ahab has a summer palace in Jezreel. Um, and Jezreel, of course, is in the Jezreel Valley, um, which is, as I mentioned in an earlier sermon, the most fertile swath of land in Israel. And we then learn that Naboth, this Jezreelite, happens to own a very nice vineyard right next to Ahab's palace. And Ahab gets it in his head that this would be uh, the ideal spot for his new veggie patch. And so he approaches Naboth with an offer. And it's worth noting that Ahab, uh, Ahab doesn't 
use his position of power to take advantage of Naboth at first. He actually makes him a very reasonable offer. He says, I will either give you a vineyard that's worth more than this one, or I will give you fair market value in cash. But Ahab has already done wrong in this, and Naboth is quick to remind him of it. Verse 3, Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. Now, this is very specific language. It's language that Ahab should have immediately recognized uh, as referring back to the rules and regulations for life in the promised land that God had given Israel through Moses. Right? We look back in Numbers 36. It says this, The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And then in Leviticus 25, uh, it says this, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. And so this redemption of the land thing needs to be explained briefly. Um, The way it worked is that God owned all the land, and he portioned it out to the tribes. And what would happen is that there was a... Uh, seven cycles of Sabbath, year in years. And that, so that leads up to 49 years. And then in the 50th year, they weren't allowed to harvest any crops um, or eat any of the food of the land because God would provide it extra for them in the 49th year. And to celebrate that, all of the land that had been in the meantime leased, because you were allowed to lease it, would be returned to the tribe that it had been allotted to. All right? And uh, this leasing, so there would be a maximum of a 49-year lease possible. um, And you could only do that if you found yourself in need. And so Naboth didn't need the money, and so he did not need to sell or lease his land. And in fact, it was his moral obligation not to sell. And so this is either a display of Ahab's ignorance of or his complete disregard for God's rules for life in the land. In God's economy, the land was his vessel of blessing to his people. They all had their own means of food production because they were subsistence farmers who lived off the land. And it was passed on generationally to ensure that God's people would never wind up as slaves again. Right? That's how they wound up in Egypt. As nomadic people, they didn't have stored up supplies for the famine. And so they had to go to Egypt to get food. And that's where they ended up being enslaved. So that's what this is all about. God's blessing of his people is tied to the land. But Ahab has adopted a completely pagan view of land and land ownership. And he thinks that he can buy up God's good gifts and use them for his own gain. So we see here that the first step towards injustice is an unbiblical view of the world and the pursuit of ungodly and selfish desires. The roots of injustice are primarily theological. All right, we are creatures driven by desire because we were created to desire God and his glory. But sin distorts our view of reality and our desires become all about ourselves and our own glory. And so because Ahab is theologically disoriented, he doesn't see, or at least he refuses to acknowledge 
that what he desires is wrong. And Jesus' brother James warns us about how dangerous this really is, right? In James 4, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. James is saying that the inevitable outcome of pursuing ungodly desires is injustice. All right, back into the text. All right, next we see, um, as is usually the case with Ahab, he doesn't take Naboth's reminder to heart and repent, but rather he doubles down in his ungodliness. He slinks home, sulking like a toddler who didn't get his way. Um, enter Jezebel into the scene, wondering why Ahab is acting like such a baby. She asks him, what happened? So Ahab gives her his account of events. But notice that it is a revised account, because when Ahab explains his predicament to Jezebel, he conveniently leaves out the motivation for Naboth's refusal to sell his inheritance. Right? He essentially reduces it to the mean man won't give me his land. But what the Lord had clearly forbidden Ahab from having, Jezebel says, I will give to you. And Ahab doesn't object. And Ahab is a great many things, but he is not dumb. He knows exactly what Jezebel is capable of. And so he turns a blind eye. And in so doing, Ahab becomes complicit in whatever happens next. But Ahab and Jezebel aren't the only guilty parties in this story, right? Jezebel then takes some of Ahab's official stationery and his royal, um, his ring, his seal, and, he sends, and she sends letters to the elders and leaders of Naboth's city, instructing them on how to have Naboth executed legally. They were to call a fast, because if injustice was going to be perpetrated, it was going to be perpetrated under the guise of religious ceremony. And they were going to have two false witnesses accuse Naboth of capital offenses of blasphemy and treason. And then they were going to use the judicial system of the day to sentence him to death and make the people carry out that sentence. This scheme was the ancient equivalent to shooting an unarmed person and planting a gun on them so you could claim to have acted in self-defense. And we see in verse 11, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to them. The elders and the leaders of Jezreel went right along with him. No questions asked, no objections raised. Two possible reasons. Either they're trying to protect their positions of power and influence, or they're scared for their lives. Now, one may be more understandable than the other, but neither justifies their actions. So they, too, are guilty. And what about these, these worthless men that we read about? These worthless men, that's a, a translation from a Hebrew idiom, literally translated sons of Belial, associated with Satan. In other words, these were people that everybody knew were bad actors. They would have been questionable witnesses at best. 
And so it's possible that everyone who witnessed the trial also had an idea that something fishy was going on. Because as part of the insurance of justice built into the Israelite system, the accusers had to throw the first stones. And if they were found to have been lying in their testimony, they would suffer the same fate as the accused. And even though the author leaves this detail out here, Naboth's family would have all been stoned along with him. And 2 Kings 9 corroborates this when Jehu talks about the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons that was spilled there that day. This also explains why there's no error in the way to obstruct Ahab from taking possession of his property after the deed is done. And so these worthless men were the kind of people who could sleep at night with something like that on their conscience. And by the time Naboth and his family are dead, Ahab, Jezebel, the elders and leaders of Jezreel, and these worthless men, and potentially many others, all bear the guilt of this crime. They all willingly participated. How is this possible? How is it possible that this many people agree to involve themselves in such a despicable miscarriage of justice, either directly or indirectly? And the answer is tragically simple. Everyone involved desired something more than they desired the well-being of Naboth and his family. Ahab wanted his veggie patch more than he wanted the well-being of Naboth's family. Jezebel wanted to remind everyone that she was the law in this town more than she wanted the well-being of Naboth and his family. The elders and leaders wanted to protect their positions of privilege as well as their lives more than they wanted to protect the well-being of Naboth's family. And the worthless men, they most likely did what they did just for a little bit of money. So what is the ultimate cause of injustice? The ultimate cause of injustice is an ungodly worldview that allows and enables the pursuit of ungodly desires. And remember what I mean when I say ungodly. This was from an earlier sermon. Ungodliness, I define it as living one's everyday life and making one's everyday choices without reference to God. So when Jezebel brings Ahab the news that Naboth is dead, our text says that as soon as he heard it, Verse 16, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Again, Ahab doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't want to know. He turns a blind eye to the obvious injustice that has taken place because he is about to benefit from it. Ahab's behavior proves that he is not thinking like someone who knows that they live before an all-knowing and just God. But if we're honest, don't we all behave like this sometimes? You know, one of the most obvious examples in the West is our consumerism. Right? We want the best selection of goods and services at the cheapest possible prices. And the reality is that we do live within systems, and sometimes we have no choice not to participate in them, but the fair trade movement has helped us to consider the impact of our choices on those who produce our goods. 
It's also taught us that we can vote with our dollars and affect change in the systems we participate in. And as Christians, we really need to wrestle with these things. We need to examine our lives and habits through the lens of Scripture to make sure that we aren't simply following an ungodly culture wherever it leads us. We don't have the luxury of pleading ignorance. We ought to care deeply about the impact our decisions have on our neighbors. But more on that later. Point two, the cure for injustice. As I said earlier, if injustice is primarily a theological problem, then justice is primarily a theological ideal. You see, up until this point in our story, our culture would see exactly what we have seen. We would likely be uh, mostly in agreement in our assessment of the characters and their actions. And one of the things that the current social justice movement has been very good at is exposing injustice that the majority population has been content to turn a blind eye to for various reasons. But this is where Christians really need to be wise. Because social justice and true biblical justice are not the same thing, at least not as our current culture seems to define social justice. And it's a slippery term at best, but after doing a little bit of digging, this is, this is one of the better definitions that I came across. It says this, social justice is a concept of fair and just relations between the individual and society as measured by the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and social privileges. Now, on the surface, most of that sounds pretty good because social justice scratches at a very real itch because we are created in the image of a just God. The desire for justice is written on our very hearts. But this is exactly what our culture's idea of justice is missing. It's the heart. By and large, the movement is exclusively focused on correcting the external symptoms of injustice rather than tackling the root cause. The redistribution of resources, opportunities, and positions of power will never truly solve the problem of injustice in the world. As long as our view of justice is limited to each of us getting what is owed to us by society, it will necessarily be self-serving. But selfishness is what got us into this mess in the first place. As long as human hearts remain sick with sin, anything other than the gospel will ultimately just create more injustice. And I want to be very clear on this point. Very clear. I am not suggesting that we abandon attempts at social reform. Not even a little bit. Rather, we have to do more. We have to go deeper. All right. Back into our text. In verse 17 and following, we see that God sends Elijah to confront Ahab in Naboth's vineyard, where he is in the process of signing the paperwork and meeting with his landscape architects. And God tells Elijah to say to him, Thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? Sorry. 
It's warm again. You see, Ahab thinks he's gotten away with it. Ahab thinks he can claim innocence because he didn't actually have anything to do with the plot. He thinks that he's free from any moral culpability. But God is letting Ahab know in no uncertain terms that he does not accept Ahab's claim to ignorance as a legitimate defense. He's the God who knows and sees the heart. And so he knows Ahab to be guilty of murder. And so God pronounces his sentence. Ahab and all of his family are going to be cut off from the Lord forever and they would become actual dog food. And these are some incredibly gruesome chapters that follow as we actually see these events carried out. This comes true. All this Ahab had brought on himself and more. But take special notice of this. We read all the way back in chapter 16, many years prior, that uh, Ahab had done more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, than anyone who had come before him. All the way back then, he had already done more to provoke God to anger than anyone else. And yet, God continued to deal gently and patiently with him, refusing to repay his actions as they deserved. But there's something about this specific event. This is the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? Something about this gross abuse of power against one of his faithful servants incites God's anger in a whole new way. And so he sends Elijah immediately to announce full and harsh judgment. So what's going on here? It's not that God cares more about social justice than about his own glory, but rather that God is most glorified through showing mercy. God had delayed the judgment for Ahab's sins so far for a reason. He did so in order that Ahab might repent and use his position of power and influence to show mercy to others and to chip away at the injustice of the world. This had been God's design for his covenant people all along. God brings true justice to the world by suspending judgment and showing mercy to undeserving sinners so that they will, in turn, respond in repentance and show mercy to others. God calls us to love our neighbor as ourself. And this command is inextricably linked to the command to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. If we truly love God, we will, by extension, love our neighbor as ourselves. And the inverse is true as well. If we fail to love our neighbors, we prove that we don't really love God either. And this is the principle that we see all throughout Scripture. Injustice against people equals injustice against God. This is why David says in Psalm 51, after his sins against Bathsheba and Uriah and all that, he says, against you only have I sinned, speaking to God. But surely David had sinned against Bathsheba, and surely he had sinned against Uriah, And he had sinned against his own family, and he had sinned against Joab and all of his loyal soldiers, who he forced to carry out his crime. But it's because injustice against God's 
image bearers is injustice against God. And it's also why time and again, God says that taking up the cause of the marginalized and vulnerable in society is the way you show your love for him. One of the most well-known memory verses from the Old Testament is Micah 6, verse 8. He has shown you, old man, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Psalm 82 says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Isaiah 1 says, Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And how about a New Testament selection? James 1 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The Lord assumes the presence of inequity and an imbalance of power in the world because he knows our sinful hearts. Injustice is a fixture of life in a fallen world. And it's the very purpose for God choosing and setting apart a people for himself in the first place so that they would be his agents of mercy in the world, pushing back against the injustice and restoring peace to the land. So that by those actions, the surrounding nations would see how amazing life among God's people is, and they would see justice, they would see peace, they would see mercy, and by it all, they would be drawn to know and love the God of justice and peace, and mercy. This is the only way that true justice can be restored. But like Ahab, and like the kings that followed him, we neglected justice in favor of our own sinful desires. And so we too have participated in the death of an innocent Man, Jesus shared Naboth's fate. The gospel accounts of Jesus' trial and execution are filled with echoes of Naboth's story. Falsely accused in a kangaroo trial, a righteous and innocent man was wrongfully executed because ungodly sinners wanted to go on pursuing their ungodly desires. And we're right to ask, how does the death of another innocent man bring about justice? At the cross, God's plan to redeem a world sick with sin is revealed as justice collides with mercy. At the cross, God makes it abundantly clear that he took the cost of the imbalance of justice in the world on himself in order that we might finally understand that we are the cause of injustice in the world. If the ultimate cause of injustice in our, is our ungodliness then the only cure is for us to be made new in Christ. 
And so he didn't deal with us as we deserved, but instead he poured out grace and mercy on us so that we could become reconciled to him and do the same to others. It is only once we have come to know and to love the God of justice through his mercy that we are able to pursue true justice in the world. It is only then that our hearts will truly break for the cause of the oppressed as his does. Just a couple of closing thoughts. There is so much wrong in the world. I mean, we're confronted with it every day. Every time we turn on the news, every time we open our social media feeds, And because of this, our tendency is to become overwhelmed by it and our sense of powerlessness to change it. This typically results in one of two attitudes towards injustice in our world. Either we try to ignore it and try to pacify our sense of guilt by pretending it's not there, or we become angry and despairing about it. Both responses are counterproductive to the pursuit of true justice. We need to change our perspective. Yes, you are just one person, and no, you cannot fix all the problems of the world. But you can be a powerful agent of change in your personal sphere of influence. You can affect real change in your own family, in your own neighborhood, in your own workplace, in your own town. And God's people are everywhere. If we all get busy about the work of loving our neighbor as ourselves, God will use that to bring justice to this world. Pray that God would mobilize you and all of his people everywhere on his mission of making right all that is wrong. And just remember what God requires of you. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with him. And be amazed at what he can accomplish through that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy toward us. Forgive us for our complacency and our slowness to take up the cause of justice in the world. Jesus, thank you for taking the cost of our injustice on yourself to free us to pursue justice for others. Holy Spirit, teach us and empower us to see and act on behalf of the oppressed in this world. And by it, may your name be glorified. Amen.